Well, today we are uh, continuing on in our series that we've entitled The Gospel in Real Life, where we're taking some specific topics, uh, some that we often don't talk about in the church head on, and we're bathing them in the light of the gospel. We've talked about depression and gluttony and prejudice and divorce and anxiety so far, and it's been a really, I think, powerful season for all of us to see that Lord is... Jesus is Lord over, over everything. <laughs> Just because we have modern language for things doesn't mean Jesus is not aware of them. He's the creator. His good news is for everybody. And today, to that end, we're going to hone in on the gospel and addiction. Where does the gospel intersect with addiction? Well, if you're like me, uh, you'll be a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien, you'll know the Lord of the Rings, and if you know the Lord of the Rings, you certainly know the character Gollum. Gollum is the picture of the conflicted soul, right? He found this object, it's a ring, which he calls his precious, and the ring promises a couple things. It promises invisibility and power. And he has this inner turmoil. You actually hear this dialogue back and forth in his own mind of of wanting this precious. I want it. That's his refrain. I want it. And then he gets it, and it destroys him. This is the picture of addiction. This is the picture of addiction. Something that is precious to us, has become precious, has this draw that is almost uh, unassailable. And then when we get it, it, it kills us. I know there's many, some in here, who will not be unaware of the devastating impact of, of major addictions. I, I lost an aunt to alcoholism six years ago, and so I'm, I'm not unaware of this. Yes, addiction is a, a tragic result of our fallen reality. But before we wade any more into the world of addiction and kind of press into that, I want to hit pause on that for a moment. Because I think it's so important for us as Christians to see something glorious that addiction points to. The reality that addiction happens actually points to something incredible. Namely, we were created by God with desires. So the addict has actually tapped into something profound. This insatiable longing for something. That's not a bad thing. God has created us with desire. He wired us with desire. He just meant for them to be fulfilled in him. He knows what we run on. C.S. Lewis said it better than anyone has outside of Scripture And this is the quote that outside of Scripture has impacted me more than anything else. It truly has. If you get this, this changes everything. He says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink 
and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the addict's biggest problem is not desire. It's that his desire is too weak, ultimately. We are half-hearted creatures. That's the reason we sin. We have this vacuum of desire, and we try to fill it with things that simply can't satisfy. Jesus says, you need to get a stronger desire for a higher satisfaction. That's what Christianity is. It's pursuing our greatest joy, which is to be found in Jesus Christ. Scripture does have a lot to say about self-denial, as someone once said, but not as self-denial in an end in and of itself. Yes, the addicted man has found something that some of us have never fully understood, namely the deep longing in our souls. But addiction is, is a sort of malware in the operating systems of our minds that corrupts and distorts these God-given desires. It short-circuits the ability to find deeper joy and to pursue deeper gratification, to have deferred gratification. It, it, it's, it's malware that almost makes it feel impossible to resist that. Whether we're talking about addiction specifically or any proclivity that leads to sin, whenever God says no to something, he does it in the same way that the man who designed the Porsche says no to pouring gravel into the gas tank of his beautiful machine. That's not what it runs on. And so it is with us. God knows what we run on. And one of the keys to, to fighting addiction or fighting sin is knowing God is for our joy and he wants our portion souls to cruise on the eternal interstate with power and speed. He, he wants that for us. All right. That's part of my introduction. Now we're turning again to the subject of addiction. So, of course, addiction comes with a whole wide spectrum of possibilities. Um, alcohol, drugs, these are, these are easy to see because they kind of present themselves, but we all have addicted souls. I'm sure there's nobody in here that can't relate to this picture here. And this is part of our reality. And we laugh. But this is killing us as a society, and that's true. It, it, it really is. We are wildly distracted. It makes it impossible to attend to reality. It does. This is me, and it's not okay. So the text today has something for all of us. We all have addictive tendencies, but we will be specifically talking about more major addictions today, just so we know where we're going. Well, it's always good to start with defining our terms. So what do we mean when we use the word addiction? So, so what do we mean when we say addiction? Well, the Bible actually never uses the word, so we can't just point to chapter and verse and say, well, here's a biblical definition of addiction. No, of course, the Bible speaks into it. It just doesn't use the language. So here's a working definition that's pretty broad. Addiction is a compulsive need for and use of a habit-forming substance or activity. 
characterized by tolerance and by physiological symptoms upon withdrawal. So that's, that's the standard definition. It's a compulsion that has become so habituated that it literally has rewired your system. It's corrupted the, the operating system. And so as you may know, in the Christian world, there's a debate as to how we should talk about addiction. Do we just say, this is sin and it needs to be repented of? I've heard that from people. Or do we say, this is a disease that needs to be cured? That's another option. I would say that both of these explanations on their own fall short of providing a full picture of what the Bible would say addiction is. And it's vitally important that as Christians we aren't simplistic when we talk about the nature of addiction We can't be simplistic when we talk about the nature of addiction. There is a physiological component to this. Now, on the one hand, there is no getting around the reality that addiction leads to sinful behavior. There's no getting getting around that. Scripture says, don't get drunk. If you get drunk, you're disobeying Scripture. Paul in Romans 17, or excuse me, Romans 7 If I'm preaching from Romans 17, you all want to leave because there is no no Romans 17. He says something that actually sounds akin to to the addicted man. He says this, For I I do not understand my own actions. For I I, I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing that I hate. Right? That sounds like addiction. I don't do what I want, but I do what I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So addiction certainly gives a certain proclivity to sinful behavior, but, and this is very important, having an addiction is not sinful. You can be born with a predisposition to drugs or alcohol or other things. You can be born that way, right? And so that can't be a sin. Jonathan Benz, in this really helpful book called The Recovery-Minded Church, said this, and this is going to help us think well as Christians. How do we speak about this? He says, addiction is not the same thing as the particular sin of a person who has the illness, nor should it be equated as such. The problem with this myth, then, is that it presents a false, misleading reductionism about addiction and sin. Put another way, it is not a sin to be an addict. Having the disease of addiction may result in sinful consequences, But a simple equation between addiction and sin fails to account for the tragic complexities of the illness and its development and impact on the addict's lives. And so as we come around people as a church who has an addiction, we must not be simplistic, right? We must be empathetic. We can't understand their struggle. We can't understand what's got rewired that makes it almost feel impossible to Resist. Earlier this week, I was speaking with a friend who has struggled with major addiction, and, I, and I, he used the language of disease. And I said to him, what would you say to somebody who challenged your use of disease and said it's sin? And I loved his response. He says, I would tell them, I don't care what you call it. I'm just trying to get free from it. And I think that's the right answer. So now we attend to God's word because that's all that really matters. My thoughts aren't that important. Um, so let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5. Chapters 1 through 11, and if you could turn there, I'd appreciate that, because it's very important that you see that this existed in God's mind before it existed in my my mouth. 
we're going to look at four truths that we must take hold of in the battle against addiction. So you might be saying, well, I thought the Bible didn't speak about addiction. It's true. But it has a lot to say about sobriety, which is the other side of addiction. And so we're going to see four truths we must take hold of as we battle for sobriety. The first one is this. Sobriety begins with proclaiming our gospel identity. Sobriety begins with proclaiming our gospel identity, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and, and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So we're kind of jumping right in the middle of the scripture here. This is a letter that Pastor Paul wrote to a church that he planted. And since we're reading somebody else's mail, let's kind of understand where we're coming from. A big concern for Paul in this letter concerned the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he uses this to undergird the urgency we should feel as believers in our battle against darkness. And for unbelievers as a wake-up call, right? Those first couple of verses are intense. They're meant to be. They're, they're meant to be a wake-up call. There is a way to believe that you are in peace and security and to, to not be. And if that's you and you're struggling with addiction, the first thing you need to get right is your forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. To throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. And I just want to preface this with that because as we move forward, Paul is assuming now he's speaking to Christians. But he doesn't assume that up front. Right? So going forward, we need to test ourselves. Have we thrown ourselves on Christ? And if so, man, we have so much good news for you as we move forward here. So he gives them this wake-up call, and then he transitions into verse 4 and 5, as we read. And he does an interesting thing here in these two verses. He proclaims their gospel identity, but he does it in five different ways in just two verses. Five times he says it in a different way who they are. Why would he do that? Well, like in our time now, uh, and it was back then, repetition is meant to have an impact. This is not an accident. He says this, You are not in darkness, one. Brothers, for that day to come surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light, two. Children of the day, three. We are not of the night, four or of the darkness. Paul doesn't like to just waste words. He means to show you the importance of proclaiming over and over again who you are in Christ. There is power in saying, this is who I am fundamentally. And no matter who you are, no matter what you struggle with, even now, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That is your fundamental identity. 
And we need to proclaim that to ourselves a hundred times a day. I do. I don't know about you, but I would recommend it because we are so prone to hear the accusations of the enemy, especially when we relapse, right? Which will happen. It happens in addictions. If you're going to come alongside somebody, realize it's a long journey. And so we proclaim our gospel identity. Last year for one of my classes, I had to attend a, an AA meeting. And I highly recommend that, by the way, for anybody. If you want to know what church should look like in some ways, go to an AA meeting because they just don't care. <laughs> Seriously, they have been brought low. And so they lay it out there, and I'm like, these are my people. I wish this was my community group. Here's all my stuff. I know. I need help. That's the first principle. I need help. So I loved it. So if you've been to one, you'll know that part of the protocol is as they go around and introduce themselves, they'll say, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. That's, that is part of how it works. So my question is, does this contradict what I'm saying at this point? Is it, is it wrong and unhelpful if you're in addiction to say, I'm this, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, I'm a porn addict? Is that bad to say over yourself? And I would say no. I, I don't think there's a contradiction in what Paul is saying here and, and what I'm saying here. Why is it not? Well, for one, it's good to know ourselves. Because we are so prone to self-delusion in an inflated view of our strength or a deflated view of our brokenness. And certain addictions are so powerful, the gravity so deceptive, that you better be aware at all times that that is a possibility that you could fall into. And Paul even says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew that he was the chief of sinners. And so is it a contradiction to say, I'm a children of the light and I'm a chief of sinners? No contradiction at all. We need to know ourselves. We need to know our, our proclivities. We need to know the siren songs that vie for our affections and say, yeah, that's part of who I am. But at the most fundamental level, I'm a children of the light. I'm a child of the light. So first, sobriety begins with proclaiming our gospel identity. Number two, sobriety takes serious intentionality. Sobriety takes serious intentionality. Verses 6 through 8a. So then, in light of our identity, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. To be a Christian is to make intentional war against the flesh. That is a given. John Owen said, either be killing sin or let sin kill you. It is an intentional war. And how much more then if you have an addiction or a, a compulsion? It takes serious intentionality. So do you see the logic again that Paul's working with? Since we belong to the day, identity statement. Since you are this, do this. 
since you belong to the day, let us be sober then. You do belong to the day, therefore be this in Christ with vigor. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you don't have a plan of action against whatever your addiction or compulsion is, it will consume you. That's what he says. He says the devil is like a lion waiting to devour you. How much more if you have a physiological wiring towards that now, let alone the spiritual battle? Whether that is joining a recovery group or reaching out to a pastor or a friend in the church that you trust, you need to take serious action to bring somebody you trust into the light to help you with this. Your default will not be a win, right? The wolves are waiting. This is sober language, no pun intended. You must be willing to go to eye-gouging lengths to remain sober. Also, you must know your uh, triggers. Look again at the text, how Paul is so practical here. He says, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He's saying, you know what environment there is where this happens. He's saying, there are certain fertile soil for deadly fruit. Don't go to that place. Or, don't walk into the lion's den. That might mean sacrificing something else that has become precious or seemed like a necessity, like Wi-Fi, like sleep because you have to get up at 5 a.m. for a meeting. That's a small price to pay to save your soul and to keep it healthy. That's a minuscule price to pay. For instance, and this is, I don't currently struggle with a major addiction. I got plenty of my own struggles. But one thing that I've purposed in myself is I won't go to a theater to see a non-war R-rated movie. Because if the world says this is rated R, and I know my own soul, it will be unhelpful for me at some point. The last thing I need is whatever Hollywood decides to just throw randomly up on the screen in front of me. And so that's one of my own personal things. If it's rated hard, R, I just won't see it. And that's really not that big of a deal <laughs> to combat lust or anything else it might throw at me. So that's me. So here's my question for you. Have you gotten serious about sobriety? And this applies to all of us, of course. We're speaking on addiction. But this applies to all of us in our war against sin. Do you have a plan for avoiding the darkness that is always near at hand? Romans 13, 14. It's very practical. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Do we do that? Right now, what provision have you made for the flesh? You need to burn that bridge. Right? All right. Now our third point. Sobriety takes waging war with gospel weaponry. Verses 8b through 10. Let us be sober. How? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So here we see the final logical progression of how Paul is teaching us to fight for sobriety. We live as the children of the light. We proclaim our identity continuously. We get serious about sobriety. And then we make proactive war against addiction and sin with gospel weaponry. Or to say it another way, if you are sleepwalking through a firefight, the first thing you need to do is wake up. But the next thing you need to do very quickly is find a weapon. And Paul shows us what the weapons, some of the weapons of our war are. They are the armor and artillery of the gospel. First, he highlights the breastplate of faith and love. So how do we wield this on the ground practically? I'm very interested in, okay, so tomorrow morning, what do I do in my war? I don't want this to stay in the clouds. I want us to know how do we fight with these weapons that he said, look to these. Well, the first one he said is faith. And the fight against addiction is a fight of faith. Because in your own strength, you cannot do it. But we know that we haven't been left alone. The enemy is always going to want you to think that you are helpless. And the truth is, in the flesh we are helpless. That's why he has given us the breastplate of faith with 1 Corinthians 10.13 as one of many. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is a precious promise in the battle against addiction. God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. Now, I'm not being simplistic with that either. I'm not saying that the way of escape is just praying as hard as you can in isolation. He's brought a hundred ways of escape through friends, like I said, through recovery programs. We need to take hold of these things. There is no addiction that can stand under the full weight of the glory of Jesus Christ. And there is no darkness that won't be consumed when the light of the gospel breaks into our hearts. The devil wants you to not believe that. He wants to say that you are helpless. This is how many times the same thing over and over again? And we say, that's true, but Jesus. But I'm a child of the light most fundamentally. That needs to be taken hold of by faith. Faith. So how does love then work in this war? Well, it's faith in the knowledge that there is nothing that you can do to separate you from the love of Christ, right? Isn't that what that would be? Even when you are at your lowest, to keep the war metaphor going, all of us need a, a scriptural quiver with arrows of truth that we can pull out when we are tempted to despair. One of them would be this, concerning God's love towards us. 1 John three nineteen through 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. There will be times where we need to reassure our hearts. That's assumed in that. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. So faith 
in what Christ has done, faith that nothing can separate us from the love of God. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. In a really spiritually formative time of my season, the Lord brought um, a dear author, J.I. Packer, onto my path, and he has been so helpful for me. And he has one quote in his book, Knowing God, that speaks to this end that is, I mean, that goes in the quiver, not the scriptural quiver, but another one. And it is helpful. Listen to this. I, I think this might be very encouraging for you, especially if even today you just feel far from God. Hear this. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic and based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Friend, you can't disillusion God. Isn't that comforting? It was in the darkest moment of your life possible that he said, I will come for him. It was already in that place. So there is no depth of addiction or struggle that you can reach that God didn't already know about. He's not surprised. He knows everything, the beginning from the end. He knows every dire situation, situation that, we'll, that we would come into. And that's the reason the lengths he had to go to were so extreme, namely the crucifixion of the Son of God, because it was really bad. And he knew that. He knew that, and he covered it. We cannot run, outrun the long arm of God's love for us. But if we would throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ and his finished work and put our faith fully on what he has done for us, we can have confidence. And that's where our text takes us next. He talks about now the helmet of hope. What, what is the hope? Well, he tells us, verses 9 through 10, that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is our hope. Friend, God has not destined you for wrath. This is the reason Jesus came. What we're talking about today is the reason Jesus came. In John 4, at the beginning of his ministry, excuse me, Luke 4, we get this beautiful pronouncement from the words of Christ echoing the prophet Isaiah of the reason that he came. And it's an amazing scene. He's in his hometown, in his temple. And the scriptures say this, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To, pro to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I love this. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The reason Jesus came was to bring captives to freedom. Do you feel in bondage? That's the reason Jesus came. To set you free. To glorify God's grace in your life as a trophy of his patience. So I encourage you, if you are struggling today, do like they did in the temple. Fix your eyes on the one who said, I came to set captives free. That's what you need to do today. Now, there are other things you will have to do if you are in major addiction, and we want to help you. Fill out the Connect card, drop it in there, and we will help you. We'll do whatever we can take. But there's also something today that you can have from Christ, and it is assurance of his love for you. There's power in the gospel. That's the third thing. Sobriety begins by claiming, proclaiming our gospel identity. It begins by taking serious intentionality, and sobriety takes waging war with gospel weaponry. And finally, sobriety takes communal encouragement. Verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And to that end, for our fourth point, I wanted to do just that. We have a brother, Patrick, in our community who, who knows the road of addiction. And he wanted to share with us today a little bit. Actually, I asked him if he would. He kindly said yes. To encourage us and for us to encourage him. So you can grab that mic there, Patrick. And we can do our fourth point together. How's sure. that sound? Yes. Well, it's good to see you, brother. Thank you for doing this, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I love this guy because when you're a worship leader, and I see a lot of people just doing this, this brother's just raising them and praising them. And, <laughs> and it's a sweet thing for me, so thank you for already encouraging me so much. But I wanted to ask, by way of starting, as someone who knows the journey of addiction, um, how important has it been for you, this idea of proclaiming your gospel identity? Well, um, you know, I am a recovering addict. Um, and I've been saved for, I don't know, 10, 15 years going to church. So before that, I want to say that that was awesome. That what you just said was, uh, that was a strong, clear message, and I appreciate that. Um, and I'm kind of nervous, but everybody looks nice. Yeah, they're real they're nice. Nice, nice, right? You should see me Saturday night. So everyone smile. Do me a favor. Uh, so you're doing fine. Um, for me personally, uh, the identity piece was important. I I, I, I I developed a performance-based identity as a kid growing up, you know? So it was like if I did something good, I was good. If I did something bad, I was bad. Either way, I was wrong, you know? Um, And at some point along the way, um, the Lord kind of spoke to me clearly and told me, stop doing, simply be, you know? Like, it doesn't matter. What you do doesn't matter if I'm doing if I'm doing well or if I stumble. Um, that my identity is found in God. That my identity is found as a child of God, is loved, and that's important because, you know, if I let's say for example I have a relapse, 
And I let that, now I'm, you know, like a hopeless addict, right? right. That makes it harder for me to get up and keep walking, you know? If I have a stumble, and the same thing would be true in reverse. Like if I do something awesome, you know, and now I'm this, I have this inflated, you know, because I find that in my life I'm either like I'm really awesome or I'm really terrible, and it's not, that's not reality. Um, but, it, you know, if I'm a loved child of God that has a stumble, I get up and I keep going. Right. I'm motivated to do that. Right. You know, so the identity has been important. Now for, for others, you know, I, I would, I'm sure it would be the same, yeah. you know, for us to know, for us to have that connection with God. Yeah. I, I know one of the huge things in, in your world and for those who have struggled mm-hmm. is, is the idea of community mm-hmm. and how you cannot do this alone. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us who struggle, mm-hmm. and, and we all struggle, so this applies for sin, but even with addiction mm-hmm. in general, what encouragement would you have for them if they feel too, too ashamed to reach out? Or, or what step would you encourage them to make? Well, I mean, it might sound too simple, but reach out. I mean, I get it. It's embarrassing. Like, I have the most embarrassing stories. If you want to hear one of them after, you know, I'll, I'll tell you. But this I can, is why I love them. <laughs> I yeah. I get to a point where, I mean, freedom is so cool and to have that experience. But, but I, know, I know from my own experience, I know from just my life and working with people and being around people that it's, it's really, really hard. It's really, really scary. It could be like the most scary, most impossible-seeming thing to admit something like that. There's a stigma, you know. Um, But it's literally like the key to unlock the door for recovery to happen. It's it's the key. It's not going to happen if if you're unwilling or unable to to just come clean. And And I now I know that you know, certain environments are more conducive than others for that to happen. You know what I mean? Like, like you said the thing, you said so many things that were really cool. <laughs> well, you, the way you talked about the AA meeting, yeah. right? It was, I had the same, I mean, you, you know, I told you, I, you know, I've, I've had, I've spent years being in ministry at times in my life and been in church. Uh, my place now, where I, I have a home now, is in Narcotics Anonymous, which is like pretty much very similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had the same reaction, you know? Like, ah, man, church should be like this. I mean, not this church, but, you know, like the church across the street should be like this, you know, (laughs) where, where, (laughs) you know, where where, uh, it's just honest. Now, we got a lot of, we got a lot of work to do. Like your Sunday clothes. Yeah, how you doing, brother? Good, brother. You know, uh, I did say that this morning, didn't I? I'm sorry. No, I was, (laughs) I was going to put that on you. Um, But that is, though. I mean, I remember a time, right? I'm in ministry, and one of like the assistant pastors, who's like my best friend to this day. This is on the East Coast. None of you know this guy, so don't worry about it. Just it was just one. I'm just thinking of the story right now. It was like one moment in his office on a Tuesday. We were, you know, doing our other, you know, weekly jobs, and he just decided. We just decided, like it was almost like God was there. We just decided, you know, what we're gonna do is just be completely honest, completely 100% honest. And he started I like telling me, almost like God was there. Yeah, <laughs> and. We just started telling each other. Like he told me, like some, like he struggles with pornography for that, in that example, just straight up, you know, like stuff that like you'd be afraid of getting fired if you were in the ministry, and just straight up. Right. And I forget what was going on. I told him, and there was so much power in that, like amazing, unbelievable power mm-hmm. in that, in being able to be straight up. Like this is me. Right. Here you go. Right. 
So my encouragement to someone that isn't experiencing that, it is struggling and is alone, is just um, reach out to someone, yeah, you know, space, yeah. find a space. I mean, like, I'm here. If, if, if it's someone here, like, I'm here. Like, I do not care. I will not judge. Whatever you've done, I've done worse. Um, whether it's the pastor, whether it's a meeting, you know, a 12-step meeting, yeah. um, there's resources there. But that's the step. That's the first something that has yeah, to be that, done. That's... That's why the gospel obviously is so important to this, because that's the only thing that creates the space where you can say, it's all true. It, gospel means good news because of the bad news. That's the point of the story. So thank you for sharing with us. Would you, um, would you pray for us as a community that we would grow into the type of church that, that, that breeds that type of reality where we can be honest with each other sure. and there would be freedom in that? Yeah, yeah. All right, let's pray. Let's all pray together. Father, we say thank you. You know, we say thank you. I say thank you to you a lot. And together here with the pastors and with the, with the church, um, we ask you to have your way in this issue, right? We ask you to make our hearts hearts that do not judge, to make this place a place that's obviously safe, that has an anointing, you know, that would be, you know, that would lead those that struggle to come and be honest, knowing that it's all love, that right here it's love, not judgment. Just like with you, it's love, not judgment. You know what it is? Just let us be like you. Yes. You know, we can't really work ourselves into being like you, but we sit here and we ask you to make us like you yes. and to use this message today and this body of believers, this body of you, you know, to be powerful in the lives of those that perhaps are in bondage, that, the, that like Jesus proclaimed freedom and liberty, that we here would, would be a place that proclaims through our love and through our actions of freedom and liberty. I pray in the name of Jesus that lives would be transformed from right here today. Yes. So we thank you. We love you. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you, Patrick.